future. There are no people. There are no people in the future. No people at all. There are no people in the future. Where did all my people go? There are no people in the future. Let me try my people come. Everybody, everybody, welcome, welcome. Yes, here we are. It is Friday, March 25th, 2022. Welcome to Raging Chickens Out to Coop Podcast. Yes, another awkward start on the day of the little tech things happening here and there. This is Kevin Mahoney, creator and founder of Raging Chicken. Each week, we break down the good, the bad, and the ugly in state and national politics. You can help support this show by becoming a patron for as little as $5 a month. Just head on over to patreon.com slash rcpress and you can become a patron. So it's five bucks a month. It's like a beer. It's like a good cup of coffee once a month. You can also help support the show by heading over to our YouTube channel if you're not there already. And smash that subscribe button, like the stream for this show, and hit that notification bell so every time you know every time we go live. On today's show, wow, has it been a big, big week. Uh, so many different levels. Uh, Supreme Court nominee Ketanji Brown-Jackson weathered three days of Senate confirmation hearings. Of course, that meant she had to endure QAnon-infused conspiracy theories. Senator Lindsey Graham storming out of the hearings in a hissy fit twice. And as Gabriel Gurley of the American Prospect put it, quote, the Ted Cruz CRT minstrel show. That's about as close as a descriptor as I can think of for that. Absolutely insane. Well, Jackson is expected to be confirmed by the Senate early next week, but with Mitch McConnell now coming out making a public he's not going to be voting for it. He just can't. He just can't. She may be confirmed without a single Republican vote. Um, And that will require, uh, I don't know if this is the only time in history, but the first in modern history at least, where the uh, decision, the final confirmation vote, will be decided by the Vice President of the United States, Kamala Harris. That is assuming that all the Democrats stay on board and don't try to kind of like play the bipartisan card and say, oh, we can't do that because there's no Republicans on board. Uh, But I think that she is going through. She was an amazing, uh, amazing candidate. And, uh, you know, whatever. I mean, we'll talk more about her. But she just, she was incredible. Ginny Thomas, yes, the right-wing extremist who is married to Supreme Court Justice Clarence Thomas. Well, turns out she was actively pressuring Trump's chief of staff, Mark Meadows, and other Trump officials to overturn the 2020 vote. Yes, in a series of text messages uh, between the election and right before the January 6th insurrection. Well, you know, um, she was uh, sending out those messages about telling them what to do, right? It wasn't just mark meadows either a bunch of other folks and of course clarence thomas was the sole dissenter on the supreme court when it came to uh upholding the election results interesting how that works more good news on the guaranteed income front. You know, we've been tracking that a little bit ever since uh, Amy Connect uh, was doing, have been doing some research on it. We had her on the show to talk a little about some of those programs. Um, in the days ahead, we're going to have the uh, the director of this documentary called Crazy Money On, um, where um, they, they carried out a kind of um, 
uh, a really widespread um, uh, UBI or you know universal basic income program in a small town in Africa, and they did a documentary film about it um, to draw attention to this stuff. We're going to have that, um, um, the director, I, I believe, the director of the film on, um, as soon as we can nail down the date. Um, there was a possibility that that was going to happen today, but um, just for a bunch of reasons on my end, we couldn't we couldn't make it happen. A um, little weird with the time zone, because he's, uh, uh, um, he's in Belgium, um, my understanding is so... Um, doing a little transatlantic connection there anyways anyways um so anyways see the, the um on the guaranteed income front the georgia resilience and opportunity fund uh, gro the grow um, and give directly are partnering up to launch the largest guaranteed income program tried in the american south um, it's going to be targeting atlanta's old fourth ward um, and it is pretty interesting um, it's going to be providing about 850 dollars per month through about 650 women um, by the end of the, um, the, um, the trial period, right? And so, um, and that's, you know, again, the same kind of stuff with these guaranteed income um, um, trials is that, you know, it's no questions asked, right? It's just like, here's $850 in cash and they're going to be studying that. So we're going to look for that um, in the coming weeks as well. Um, I believe um, by next week, the program is supposed to go live. And last night on uh, Chris Hayes' show, All In, he laid out, well, how like Russia's invasion of Ukraine kind of feels like the first armed con conflict in a new era, in an era in which authoritarianism is on the rise and liberal democracies have been backsliding. Um, I thought it was a really good segment on his show. I mean, there's some things that I would, you know, whatever, have some issues with, with uh, how he framed it and stuff. But I think it was really, I think, an important moment um, on a kind of a major primetime show to lay out the argument in the way that he did. So I just want to draw a little attention to that today. Speaking of drawing attention to things that aren't getting the kind of coverage they should, well, at Antarctica this week, well, they saw temperatures more than 70 degrees hotter than normal for this time of year. More than 70 degrees. They went between 50 degrees and 90 degrees above normal. That's insane. Anyways, a little closer to uh, home here in Pennsylvania, Jim Worthington, owner of the Newtown Athletic Club in Bucks County. Well, he's at it again. A staunch supporter of Donald Trump and a major financial backer of Representative Brian Fitzpatrick. Well, he's suing Democratic congressional candidate Ashley Ahaz for $50,000. Why, you might ask? Well, because she dared call attention to the fact that Worthington, quote, spent thousands of dollars to organize busloads of Trump supporters to attend the Stop the Steal rally that turned into the violent insurrection, unquote. Yep, so, you know, when in doubt, sue, sue, sue. Don't like having your uh, self-exposed, I guess. And Pennsylvania is facing a major teacher and school staffing shortage as teachers are leaving the profession due to uh, COVID, lack of support, and really contentious politics across the state. And that is according to an excellent article by Marley Parrish, the Pennsylvania Capital Star. Um, do check that out. It's a great article. The link for that is in today's show notes. Um, great interviews. Um, you'll recognize some of the folks in there. Uh, Shanna Danielson is uh, one of the folks that's interviewed. Um, but in addition, Pennsylvania has seen a 66% decline in instructional one teaching certificates granted. Like that's your kind of baseline teaching certificate that, you know, graduates from college who went on to do an education degree and they passed a certification exam. That's the basic certificate. So there's been a 66% decline. 
So not only are you having teachers leaving the profession because of all the insanity, the lack of funding, the lack of support, the constant attacks from politicians, and now the craziness in school boards, right? And like inadequate protections and support during COVID. Because of that exhaustion, because of that burnout, they're leaving. But basically students who are looking for, you know, what kind of job they want to go into, they're looking at what's happening, what's happening in schools. And they're like, I don't think I want to be part of that. So this is, we're, we're going to have to be following this really closely because I sense that there will be a whole lot of shenanigans um, that are going to be taking place um, around education in this Commonwealth, but we'll get there. And the scuttlebutt around these parts is that the president of the Penridge School Board, Joan Cullen, is floating the narrative that the community is supportive of abandoning all DII initiatives. And they're actually thinking about kind of disbanding that whole committee that you've heard us talk about here quite a bit. So we're going to follow that too as well. And Pennsylvania remains the only state that does not provide state funding for public defenders. Isn't that great? Yep, it's all up to the county level. So if you got a poor county, you've got underfunded public defenders, right? If you got a rich county, you've got kind of like, eh, okay, defend, uh, funded public defenders. It just, it's just crazy. There's so much that is just backwards in the world right now. On today's last call, I don't know what I would be going through my mind at that point. Um, got to be honest with you, um, we, uh, as you know, last week, uh, we were not able to uh, have a show because my little studio area was uh, kind of all surrounded by furniture and covered with drop cloths and everything like that as we had a little work um, happening in our basement. Um, just kind of doing some like shelving upgrades and painting and that kind of stuff. But, uh, you know, there was just a lot going on, so it was not going to be possible to have a show last week, but that has changed, um, which is good. And uh, because of all that stuff, um, my, my initial plans to do uh, a lot of work um, over break did not pan out in the way that I would have liked it. Uh, so now this week has been playing catch up, uh, which is always great. But anyways, I digress. For more PA Progressive Talk, you can tune in to the Rick Smith Show's live stream at 9 p.m. Eastern on his YouTube channel, Twitter, or Facebook. Subscribe to his podcast. You get that. Check out all his stuff over on the RickSmithShow.com for the latest across all his platforms. And as you know, it's official. Season two of Sisters of the Night Caucus podcast is rocking it and flooding the streams. You can find it on Anchor, Spotify, iTunes, or wherever you get your podcast. The amazing PA women stirring the political cauldron behind this podcast, Rock the House. Make sure you follow them on Twitter at, at the Night Caucus. That's at the Night Caucus on Twitter. Uh, attention gamers. Yes, the Game In. The Game In is a Quakertown-based black family-owned gaming store. They're friends of the show, and they've got everything from retro N64s, the latest consoles, video games for all platforms, and loads of collectibles, action figures, and Funko Pops. Kids get a discount on every A on the report card. Check them out on their Facebook page. Follow them on Twitter at the Game In. Got a question about a game? Looking for something hard to get? Shoot them a message or drop them an email at thegameinpa at gmail.com. And a special shout-out, as always, goes to Jonathan Mann, who wrote our intro song, There Are No People in the Future. Check out all his great stuff on his YouTube page and follow him on Twitter at, at @songadayman. That's at @songadayman on Twitter. Well, everybody, uh, you know I, uh, I, yeah, I'm a little off today, as you probably already can tell by the way I'm talking and stuff. By the, uh, I don't have even the correct template up for our show today. Uh, 
it's just been a little bit of a of a rough and tumble kind of morning. Um, a couple kind of show notes. Like first of all, if you haven't already checked out the uh, Out to Coop live from this past Monday, um, I had William Horn on. Uh, he's the editor of the. Um, the Activist History Review. He's a postdoc down at Villanova, and he studies um, kind of labor, race, looking at the kind of reconstruction period in the civil, like around the Civil War. And we talked a lot about about his piece. Um, it's called "The Legal Phase of Fascism Has Begun," and dug into some of the history um, around, you know, these kind of rise of white supremacy, rise of. Um, um, authoritarianism at different points in our history and how there's a lot of what's happening right now that mirrors those periods of time um, is a really good conversation. I'm so glad I had him on. I was very excited that he's willing to come on, but it's, um, it's a great piece. And, you know, do check out the show from Monday. Uh, we had great responses from the show, which is, which is awesome. Um, so if you haven't checked out our already do it. There's a link to his um, article on it from Truth Out called Fascism's Legal Phase Has Begun. Threats of White Vigilante Violence Are Real. Fantastic piece. Um, so we had that last week. Um, this Monday coming up, um, we're still at a bit of, bit of a question mark. We got a couple things that we're looking to schedule. As I mentioned in the intro today, um, I'm working with these uh, this folks, the director and the staff of the this film called Crazy Money. It's about a UBI, Universal Basic Income Experiment, in this town in Africa um, that was kind of funded, and it's kind of the findings. It's a really good documentary film. Um, very curious about um, having him on um, to talk about the show. There was a possibility we we're going to be able to do it today. Just like I just got behind the eight ball a bit and was having a little some issues making sure my internet connection was up and everything. So, um, but we're going to schedule that one coming up as soon as we can. Um, and as always, look, if you've got suggestions of people who would be good to have on the show, let me know. Shoot me an email at ragingchickenpress at gmail.com. That's ragingchickenpress at gmail.com. I'd love to hear from you. Drop it. You know, if you're listening live right now, you got an idea who you'd like to have on the show, um, you know, drop a comment in the show notes or in, in the comment section. I'd love to hear it. Um, it's great to have that kind of feedback. Um, one thing I'd like to tease a little bit for today before we kind of jump into some of the news. If you, you know, you check out the, uh, you know, no, it's this way, that that way, that way, right there. Uh, the little icon that we've got up there today, time to end extremism on our school boards. Uh, I want to preview this a little bit for today. I'll give you the full details on this next week. But um, um, on Raging Chicken, you know, one of the things that you've heard us talk about a lot over the years was the need to build out a um, – a progressive media infrastructure to invest in organizing and um, to do that independently. Um, well, um, I'm partnering up with an organization that is um, is going to help us, ideally, um, raise some money to do just that. Right. So we're going to be launching a fundraising campaign um, that is going to be called Time to End Extremism on Our School Boards. And the whole purpose of this campaign is going to be able to raise funds to help invest and help support organizing infrastructure in Bucks County in particular. Right. We'll look at kind of across the state, but we're going to be targeting Bucks County in particular um, initially, in part because, um, look, uh, right now, from my perspective, Bucks County is on the front lines of some really extremist politics. And, um, you know, we've got some big money in the area too as well that is investing in building kind of extremist um, 
uh, extremist organization, right? Or at least help supporting the most right of the right wing um, kind of in this county. And frankly, you know, we've seen the kind of money that that pours in um, to, uh, you know, fund these school board elections. Uh, you know, we've talked a lot about Paul Martino on the show. We've looked at different kinds of organizations that are organizing in, um, in the area. And I think that um, a lot of us have become frustrated with um, the lack of that kind of the same kind of infrastructure um, for kind of, you know, the broad kind of, you know, progressive center and left. Um, and we know that there is generally not a lot of money around to really, you know, support that organizing. Um, and then when it comes to supporting candidates, right, we want to make sure that we're going to be kind of fighting to get progressive candidates elected in this county. Um, that a, lot, a number of folks that we've talked to over the years, um, this is not just in Bucks County, but is it across the state, have become frustrated with some of the, um, the domineering um, of the kind of consultant class that kind of flies in and drops in uh, Democratic consultants that uh, ha sometimes has not so helpful influence on um, the kind of messaging and elections. And we think there should be a, um, um, a group of progressives, right, that are going to make a strong case, right, um, to provide some kind of counterbalance to that. So we're going to see where, how we can take this. Um, the idea is to, um, we're going to be launching this probably next week. We just got the final clearance um, and all the kind of legal stuff kind of out of the way, um, and we'll be launching this um, next week and with the goal of, you know, raising kind of whatever money we can now, not right before kind of, you know, the next school board elections or uh, right before the, you know, 2022 midterms, but raising it now um, as part of protracted, sustainable investment in building progressive energy and messaging and power um, here in Bucks County. So that's my little preview of it um, there right now. The focus is going to be ending extremism on our school boards, and we will be um, kind of sending out some details to our, both our mailing list and to our um, uh, our patrons um, at the beginning of next week. So here we go. Um, I'm very, very thrilled. Uh, yes, Amy Wahoo is indeed. Um, we'll have lots more uh, coming up on that, and uh, I've already got some ideas about how we could do it. So let me say one a little bit more just about this really quickly. So if if anybody on the you know anybody listens to this show who's kind of of the you know center to the left, right? You know that one of the biggest problems that that we have often is that when we're building organizations, that yes, there might be um, fundraising moves and um, and such that that come around you know election time, but then they go away. Right. Um, it's usually built around particular campaigns or particular candidates, and then it goes away. Um, there are some great kind of nonprofit initiatives that are happening in the area, um, but there's a nonprofit ones. Right. They're kind of they're they're not specifically designed um, to engage in the political process. Um, and then likewise, we know that there is amazing people doing amazing work all throughout this county about digging into what um, the money behind this kind of this right wing assault on our school boards. Right. Um, and we think that, you know, maybe just maybe <laughs> we shouldn't be relying upon, you know, just people working on their volunteer times. Right. To do that work. Maybe we should start investing in it, you know, and 
the reason why I think it's so important in Bucks County, like I said, is like I think Bucks County is really at the front lines. The fact that we've got a national attention on this issue, we saw the you know the um, New York Times reporting on this, Philadelphia Inquirer reporting on this. This, this made CNN, it's made MSNBC, right? Um, what's happening in Pennsylvania right now? What's happening in this county in particular? Um, it is a, a frontline battle zone, okay? And um, this is an opportunity, I'm hoping, right, um, to get some attention, uh, the needed attention here before it's too late. Um, so that's kind of the idea. Anyways, um, I feel like I want to say more, but I, I should just, I should hold off until we do uh, a kind of an official launch um, next week. Um, but look forward to that. Um, and yes, I will be asking you, right? I'll be asking all of you to help publicize that, to get that out, right? Um, to help um, circulate this and um, help raise those funds um, that we can then use um, to kind of, you know, get progressive folks elected in this county, right? Um, to our school boards, right? To our, you know, county commissions, right? To our town halls, our town councils, and so on. We got to turn the tide somehow, folks. Um, this is my little way of trying to contribute to that process, um, what we have. So anyways, in the news today, you know, one thing I did not include in the the intro today, um, just in terms of what happened this week, is just obviously the ongoing war in Ukraine. And uh, it's just getting, uh, you know, worse and worse by the day. And we see what's happening to uh, Mariupol. Um, it's it just being absolutely leveled. Um, we see that, yes, you know, we get these stories about the Ukrainian army and the Ukrainian forces basically punching through some of the Russian lines um, north of Kiev. Um, but, you know, we wonder how long this is lasting. Then meanwhile, um, there's the United States and other NATO countries are sending more troops to the borders. Right. Uh, they're not sending troops um, into Ukraine, but they are um, reinforcing their troops along the borders. Um, and, you know, if you look at historical precedent, when you have this kind of concentration of forces um, very close to contact zones or conflict zones, it is um, it makes it much more likely for there to be an incident which could kind of precipitate a much broader conflict. So there's there's a lot about this this situation that's dire. Of course, the past couple of days we've heard, you know, warnings that Russia can be um, is considering using kind of uh, tactical nukes or like nuclear weapons, right, or chemical weapons um, as part of its offensive. You know, trying to understand what is what is hype and what is true is so difficult to do. Um, but that is nonetheless part of the noise, right, um, around this conflict. And uh, in in a little bit, right, right at the end of the segment, before we go to break, I, I want to come back to something that Chris Hayes said last night and then have a little comment on that because I think it was uh, right on point. So we'll come back to that. So anyways, in the uh, this week, obviously, one of the do dominated the domestic level, right, it was obviously the Supreme Court um, hearings of uh, Joe Biden's nomination to the Supreme Court. Katanji Brown Jackson, um, she was amazing. Um, when everybody said that uh, this is a woman who is probably more qualified than most everyone that is currently on the court, um, when they were kind of you know getting their going through their hearings, uh, it clearly came through <laughs> without a doubt. Um, and she responded, uh, you know. 
in like uh, seriously i don't know how you sit through some of the nonsense that she had to sit through and keep your composure all right you know i mean i would love to have been like you know having like the fly on the wall of her internal conversations right because what you have to say to yourself to remain calm in those moments must be it, it must be exhausting i mean we had you know what i think i mean i love this phrase gabriel Gurley from the american prospect said that look you know this was the ted cruz crt minstrel show that could not be more accurate right because it that's infused that kind of that moniker is so infused with all of the um, the the racism and the history of that racism um, into what actually took place up on that um, uh, what took place in those hearings it was it was incredible and uh, you know part of me would part of me when I was you know preparing for today's show I was you know thinking about bringing up clips and things of uh, of that but you know what I don't want to hear it again <laughs> I don't want to hear his Ted Cruz's nonsense again. Um, but, uh, there's a couple things that were, was kind of nice, uh, backgrounds of it. So of course, you know, part of what he did is he took this, uh, the anti-racist baby <laughs> book, right. You know, he's up there and like, he got these giant posters of this, right. About, you know, saying, do you, do you, to asking her questions about this book, like, do you think like all baby babies are racist? They're born racist. Like, first of all, that wasn't, that wasn't what the book was saying. The book was saying babies are taught to be you know, he apparently did not like the question uh, or the way it was phrased that you know, babies are taught to be racist or anti-racist. There's no neutral ground. Right. And I kind of take that as like, yeah, that's about right. <laughs> right. Is the idea is that, you know, you, th these things are built into our culture and what you do with that. Right. Um, and how you do it. But anyways, it's a, it's a, it's a little kid's book. And of course, it was by Ibrahim X. Kendi, right, um, who wrote, you know, Stamp from the Beginning. Um, he's a, an amazing public intellectual who's been um, documenting the kind of history of racism and the ways that it's kind of persistent. Um, as this amazing historical kind of engagement. And so that's really what Ted Cruz is after, right? Um, basically continue to stoke the, the flames of like this anti-CRT, this kind of like barely, you know, cloaked racism that is driving so much of these, uh, these you know, these school board engagements. Um, and just to keep that going, right? So, just, you know, he's also previewing what the 2022 election is going to be all about. Right. So it's, you know, plan on it getting worse, you know, plan on it getting worse. That's all I got to say. Um, but the the good thing is, is that all the books, I, I, well, I, I don't know, I shouldn't say this without exception, but I think most of the books that he mentioned um, in that hearing are now like Amazon bestsellers. So there you go. I think it's a, a pretty good uh, habit to get into, right? If you've got any of some disposable income is that when these people, whether it's at the local school board level, or if it's at the, uh, the national level, like with, you know, Ted Cruz's CRT minstrel show, when they mention a book that they think should be banned, it's time to buy that book. Right. Um, and if it's a book, even if you've read it already, right. Buy another copy, right. Drop it off at one of these little kind of little libraries around donate to local library, right. Pass it on to a friend. Um, you know, I, I mean, I'm, I'm very cynical about consumer activism, um, kind of in that regard. Like, I don't think it's going to have the major impact. I don't think it's going to add up to like a change of direction and a change of consciousness. No, but it is just, you know, a nice little kind of way to support those writers, 
right, to support that work, right, and to give a little kind of, you know, thumb in the eye, so to speak, um, to people like Ted Cruz. Uh, Lindsey Graham was just uh, in those hearings, too, as well, has just was, I mean, God, talk about kind of ratcheting it up a notch in his. Uh... <laughs> it is just like absolute, like, I don't know, showmanship. It was like, you know, he's like the greatest showman. Right. And he's going to stomps out of the hearing because he he can't believe. Right. You know, she does, and he's got to he gets all upset and um, would talk over her left and right every time that she was trying to answer something because she, he didn't like the answer that she was giving because it was too good. Right. And then he gets up, and he storms out of the storms out of the hearing after he just like says just a whole bunch of nonsense about Guantanamo. You know, after basically saying like those people should. I don't care. You basically said, I don't care if those people in Guantanamo Bay, Guantanamo, Guantanamo Bay are guilty or innocent. Like there's better to have them just rot in jail than it is to kind of have the risk of letting them out. He didn't say it exactly in those words, but that was basically what he was saying. He has no interest whatsoever in kind of guaranteeing any kind of like, like, you know, legal rights, right. Or due process. There's even 14 people there who've already been cleared to get released, but they can't get released. That you're just rotting in there. And he's basically saying, yep, they should all rot. And then he gets up and, like, runs away, right? Gets up. And the key is, right, you know, and, and Sam Cedar, t- you know, talked about this on the majority report yesterday. But he said, you know, look, you know, you get up and you storm off at one point. Okay, you've kind of done your theatrics, right? That's kind of part of the, you know, the political showmanship, the political theatrics of it, which Republicans do so well, especially the kind of, like, you know, the people on the uh, the fringe, like Lindsey Graham and Ted Cruz and those folks. Um, but to do it twice, it's like, I mean, how many, how many times can you go to that? You know, it's like, I, you know, that's, uh, that you, you get, a, that's the kind of like a one and done thing, right? You know, you, you've, you've taken all you can stand you can't stand no more. You get up and you leave. Right. And then that's it. Right. You're done. You don't come back. Right. Or if you do, you do it kind of begrudgingly above, above, no, but he does it twice. Like, it's just, I mean, that's just like, whatever, crazy. Um, and then then you've got, oh, my God, you know, just the the way that QAnon conspiracy theories around pedophilia and all this other kinds of stuff, these these massive, just like in-depth, crazy conspiracy theories um, that, you know, like yeah, people like Tom Cotton and Hawley and these folks that are kind of rolling this stuff out that tells you who they're speaking to. Right. You know, one of the things that we've talked about on the show quite a bit over over, you know, the past, especially over the past, I don't know, six months or so, you know, probably since last summer. Right. Is that the 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 anti-masking ramp ups and the anti-CRT stuff, right, that they're pushing in these uh, in the school board elections. That is priming the pump for their organizational strategy. Right. Right. Um, and that's something, to re- I mean, again, this is something that has historical context to it, historical basis to it. This is the way that Republicans have driven their, you know, the worst of their base um, to kind of turn out for elections. Right. You got to keep them frothing. Right. And then the best way that they, they can find to do this is through racism. Right. Is through conspiracy theory. Right. Um, and is, you know, all sorts of just, you know, nonsensical claims. And any time that they can do that in such a way that is going to attack teachers and teachers unions, you know, and kind of potentially open the door for the privatization of public education, they're all for it. Right. So, you know, when you saw these, you know, these, you know, people who were, you know, had a 
tenuous grasp on grasp on reality show up at news or uh, showing it up at school boards um, this past summer, saying all sorts of nonsense based upon you know, you know these deep kind of recesses of the QAnon spaces that they're in, and bringing that into public discourse. The fact that it was not countered immediately, right? Um, that you know we didn't have this you know throw these people out immediately. I almost you know. Um, that was, you know, the testing ground for the right wing. And now they saw that that was effective and they keep on looking what happened in Virginia. And they are convinced that it was the the CRT stuff, right, that won them that election there. Right. Won them the governor's uh, the uh, governor's uh, seat in Virginia. And they also see that, you know, they were able to flip a bunch of school boards. I mean, Paul Martino right here in Bucks County, uh, who invested, you know, several tens of thousands of dollars in school board races um, has said in that um, podcast that he, you know, he did with the New York times, uh, the daily basically said now he just, you know, he's I'm paraphrasing. These are not exactly the words that he used, but he basically said he built this machine and now he has to figure out what's going to be the best way to use that machine going forward. And he's already doing that. Right. So th- these people think about building, right? And they, they're perfectly fine. Again, it's this, the Silicon t- Valley, Valley kind of model that he brings here is just another version of these, you know, th- this kind of Republican playbook. You're willing to go in and break stuff and then to watch how it plays out, right, to determine where's going to be the most effective things, right? You don't really care about people. You don't really care about how much damage is done. You don't care about, you know, the, the traditions and the relationships that you're destroying as part of what you're doing, right? Because what you're trying to do is you're trying to figure out, when I do this, what happens? I'm going to watch what happens. Oh, look, this happened. So I'm going to build there, right? And you leave all the rubble for other people to pick up, right? I mean, that's, you know, that's got a long, we have a long tradition of doing that in the United States, right? Across the world, really. But, you know, we basically have all these things, you know, you know, in the, you know, we call them side effects when it comes to drugs, right? You know, you take this, you know, you take this pill and it'll help your liver spots or something like that, you know, and then there's all the list of these side effects that might have. Those aren't side effects. Those are effects. You're just calling them side effects, so that you can focus on this one effect that you want to privilege, right? They're externalities, right? So when we kind of drive a car, right? When you produce a car, you're also producing the means of producing pollution, right? When we produce, you know, when we have, uh, you know, when a plant, like, you know, like a nuclear nuclear reactor, right? When it produces power, we focus on the power. Then we have the kind of like, um, you know, when we have the waste product, right? We have the kind of uh, the, the radioactive waste product, right? That is not part of the production, right? We, that's not the product, but that's the side product, right? Or that is a, you know, something else. But really it's the same thing, right? The, the plant produces both, right? What we allow in this country, right? And in many places across the world is we take those externalities, they say, those unfortunate consequences or side effects, right? We take those things and we kind of shove them into someplace else and make them someone else's problem. And then you commodify only the thing that you can actually sell to people, right? Because no one's going to buy the radioactive material to take home with them too as well. I mean, imagine that and say, okay, you want to use, you want to use, you know, nuclear power, right? In your state, 
okay, so as much power that you take, you have to take the same percentage of nuclear material, nuclear waste, and store it in your backyard. Right? Because you bought it, right? I mean, you bought the power and you bought everything else was produced with it, right? But that's not how we think about stuff. These are side effects, right? And we take the cost of those things and we put them on other people. And that's, you know, exactly what just happened with these school boards, right? You have people like Paul Martino come in, right? Throw a bunch of money in this stuff, um, uh, you know, have no problems whatsoever about just kind of ripping people's lives apart, right? Destroying kind of relationships and communities, right? For a particular political agenda, right? And now he's going to commodify, right? And take ownership of and kind of continue to fund, right? This kind of machine that he's built, well, the rest of us, right, are left with the consequences of what's happened in our communities, right? And that also includes things like what, what you know, happened around COVID, right? You know, everyone's like, the anti-maskers come in. We're going to see what political advantage you can gain with the anti-masking stuff, right? You're going to create this whole kind of like, like narrative around it, you know, facts be gone, but we're going to get this whole narrative around about freedom and like oppression by kids and like, oh my God, we can't see their smiles, Right. What are the consequences of that, right? They say they want freedom, but really what they want is they want to make my kids sick. So they get their victory, you know, get people out. They get people to rally around this anti-masking stuff to get their candidates elected, right? And my kids get sick. And your kids, right? That's, I mean, that's literally legitimately what happened, right? Both my son and my daughter, despite the fact they wear can 95 um, mass to school because they had not only did they, did they convince people on the school board, but they had infused enough of that discourse into the community that parents were perfectly fine with letting their kids go to school without masks. And again, I don't mean everybody. I'm painting a little broad brush here. I get it. Right. But that's the game plan. That's the game plan. What they did to uh, Katanji Brown Jackson this week was just another example of that model. They're going to go in and they don't care what the consequences are going to be in terms of what it does to our social fabric. They don't care about what it was doing to her and her family in the midst of that. And the perfect shot of it, I mean, I'm sure you saw this already, but was Ted Cruz after he went on his kind of like, you know, did his, you know, CRT minstrel show was caught, you know, on camera sitting there, sitting back after he's done picking up his phone, going to Twitter, and searching for his name to see if he was trending, see what kind of responses he got from that to calculate whether or not he was going to continue, he was going to double down or take a slightly different course. Right? It's a, the worst kind of narcissism. You're willing to destroy anybody just to kind of get yourself in the mentions. Pretty crazy. Similarly to that, you had uh, this was great reporting coming out this week. Now, of course, I think the Washington Post and the um, the New York Times had both reported on some of this stuff before, but now these are kind of out. They find Ginny Thomas. She's the um, you know Clarence Thomas is her husband, right? The Supreme Court Justice. Um, she has been a right wing activist for years. Um, she is deep. Um, deeply, I don't know if we would say she's QAnon. I mean, I'm, I don't know if I'd want to make that claim, but definitely kind of QAnon adjacent, right? And some of the conspiracy theory stuff that she was um, uh, raving about, I'd encourage you to check out. I've linked this in um, today's show notes. There's a great um, piece in the New York Times. It says Jimmy Th uh, Ginny Thomas pressed uh, Trump's chief of staff to overturn 2020 vote text show. 
just give you a little bit of a, um, a flavor of that. What do I have it up on here already highlighted? Let me see. Yeah. Okay, let me read you a bit of this. So it's the beginning of that article. So in the weeks between the 2020 presidential election and the January 6th attack on the Capitol, Virginia Thomas, Ginny Thomas, Virginia Thomas, the wife of the Supreme Court Justice Clarence Thomas, sent a barrage of text messages imploring President Donald Trump's chief of staff to take steps to overturn the vote, according to a person with knowledge of the text. In one message sent in the days after the election, she urged the chief of staff, Mark Meadows, to, quote, release the Kraken and save us from the left taking America down, unquote, invoking a slogan popular on the right that refers to a web of conspiracy theories that Trump supporters believe would overturn the election. In another text, she wrote, quote, I can't see Americans swallowing the obvious fraud. Just going with one more thing with no frickin' consequences, unquote. And she added, quote, we just cave to people wanting Biden, Biden to be anointed. Many of us can't continue the GOP charade. Right Now, most of these texts were written by uh, Ms. Thomas, Ginny Thomas, and they represent the first evidence that she was directly advising the White House um, as she sought to overturn the election. This flip side of that, too, as well, is this is also from the article that, quote, say Justice Justice Thomas had been Mr. Trump's most stalwart defender on the court. In February 2021, he wrote a dissent after the majority declined to hear a case filed by the Pennsylvania Republicans that sought to disqualify certain mail-in ballots. And this past January, he was the only justice who voted against allowing the release of records from the Trump White House related to the January 6th attack. It's crazy. She refers to in the text, uh, Ginny Thomas, and the post-election texts are, quote, rambling with little attention to punctuation as they run the gamut. She calls November 3rd Election Day a heist and repeats debunked conspiracy theories, including ones pushed by QAnon that falsely alleged that voter fraud had been discovered in Arizona on secretly watermarked ballots. And it goes on. Right. So, you know, we got all sorts of questions about legitimacy of a whole bunch of series of institutions here, right? Um, you've got Clarence Thomas. I mean, you think about this. Clarence Thomas, whose hearings, Supreme Court hearings, were marked by uh, credible allegations of uh, sexual harassment by Anita Hill. And the, the Senate hearing, including, you know, it was overseen by Joe Biden, um, allowed some of the worst attacks on Anita Hill to take place. But Clarence Thomas is there. We got Brent Kavanaugh, who has also had credible allegations of rape and sexual assault. He is now on the court, right? One of the kind of less qualified justices. <laughs> and then Amy Coney Barrett, right, um, with very little experience, right, and kind of documented extremist um, views, especially when it comes to women's rights um, and sovereignty over her own body. Um, they're all on the court. And then you have Ketanji Brown-Jackson with all this stellar experience, had been voted in the past from Republicans before because of her immense qualifications, given an A-plus rating by the American Bar Association, you name it. She gets all that. And meanwhile, the people on the court, we find Clarence Thomas, as an example, is in cahoots, right? Um, or at least sleeps next to at night a person who was actively working, working to uh, overturn the election. 
and was pushing narratives of conspiracy theory narratives of fraud around the election, right? Now, we obviously don't know their bedroom talk, and I, to be honest with you, I don't want to imagine it. Um, so can we say that we know that they're coordinating with each other? No, we can't say that. We don't know that for sure. But certainly not a good look. <laughs> certainly not a good look. And as we know, look, I mean, if we haven't learned any, if we learned anything from the Trump administration, we should know this, that much of the ability of this country and other democracies to function as democracies, it's dependent upon certain sets of values and practices that are not necessarily legally binding ones. Right. They're based upon certain kinds of traditions and modes of engagement that are assumed. Right? One of them being when you have an election that by all accounts is shown to be open and fair and without kind of significant problems. Every election has problems without significant problems that would alter the vote. That that is an agreement that we make in a democracy that we say, OK, we lost. We'll get him next time. In Trump's, one of the first things, right? You say, presidents, what do they do? If you want to run for president, you have to show, you have to submit your taxes, right? That's what you have to do if you're going to run for president. Well, Trump showed up. Well, actually, no, no, no. That's not, that's not a law. That's a suggestion. That's a practice that people have gotten familiar with. That's the way things have been done. It doesn't mean it's the way things must be done or they face consequences. Just you go on and on. So much of the fabric of our government and of our culture is based upon practices that are built into the culture. They're not based upon laws. And what right now we have a Republican Party that is hell-bent on finding every little loophole and, and, and kind of like angle to just maintain power as a minority party at the expense of whatever they need to do. It doesn't matter what they break as long as they're making power, taking power, I should say. And that's not a great place to be. The Supreme Court, right? Why do we have, have we at least, why have we been in a situation where we look at the Supreme Court and even you sent us, well, Supreme Court said, right? Roe v. Wade, perfect example. Supreme Court said, I'd even put this in the notes today, which I, I, I was reading all about this stuff before that we'll talk about it in a second. Um, the Supreme Court said, made a decision, and now this is settled law. Roe is settled law, Right? Now we've just got a Supreme Court that basically says, yeah, we don't care. We don't care that it's settled law. We're going to allow, we're going to, you know, if you can put give us a half-ass rationale for, like, undermining your constitutional right, sure, well, yeah, we'll let you have it as long as it's on our side. As long as we can continue the suppression of women, as long as we can reduce women's rights, as long as we can kind of continue to put them in a subservient role as part of our little white supremacist patriarchal capitalist world, 
then yeah, give it to us. We'll send it on. This Idaho law that just got passed is unbelievable. It was Idaho. What was it? Missouri too as well. You got states now that are competing for which, which of them can have the most draconian version of the abortion ban. I mean, in this case, you're going to have, and you watch, and this is going to, you know, there's all the stuff that's going right up to the Supreme Court. The Supreme Court's going to say, stamp, yep. And they're using the shadow docket to deal with this stuff, right? So in other words, it comes to them, they just, just re, you know, we're just not going to hear it. We're not going to give any rationale, so you're going to let everything stand. We are watching, like, the wholesale dismantling of rights that I think a lot of us thought we were, we we're, Rights and practices that a lot of us thought were settled. Now, look, I, I I don't believe Roe v. Wade was ever one of those things, in part because it has constantly been under attack. Right. I think that, you know, uh, you know, again, we've talked about this on the show quite a bit, is that there have been uh, kind of women and organizers around kind of abortion rights that have been trying to, like, ring the bell of, you know, uh, alarm about this for quite some time. Right. Who were never settled or never happy with the way that even the Democrats dealt with Roe v. Wade. So we should be fighting for Roe v. Wade. We should be fighting for the expansion of health rights, of, of health care rights. We should be for the expansion of women, of protections for women's right to abortion, not looking for ways to limit it. Like most, you know, kind of, well, you know, I was going to say most male Democrats were complicit with or I was say, but the female ones, too, women, too. But still. Right. Say the Democrats have always been so worried about the culture war that they've walked away from it. And that same thing is, you know, we see this happen on kind of racial questions, too, as well on equity around union rights. Um, Like Democrats think anything that is that that could be labeled a culture war, they're going to lose on. So they just they go half assed on it. And, you know, again, that's changing. we got a lot more progressives out there. I got to say, I got to give a shout out to Summer Lee, who was uh, who was on the majority report yesterday uh, with Emma Viglin. Uh, so great to see her um, hit that national score. Got to get behind her candidacy. That's for sure. Um, but, you know, that's kind of stuff that's going on. When the Supreme Court, when it looks like you've got a right wing activist, extremist, right, um, doing things that are virtually identical or at least kind of in line with what her husband, who sits in the Supreme Court, is doing, that undermines the legitimacy of that court. Right. And it matters. Look, I mean, this stuff, it does matter. It matters how much people believe in our institutions. And the only way you can believe in the institutions, you have to have institutions that are actually carrying out the will of the people. The more you erode that, the more it goes away. Right now, I think, you know, look, I mean, I think most of us, you know, have had uh, have been cynical at best when it comes to uh, American institutions after we've seen what it's done with inequality, what's seen with the lack of ability to kind of address um, deep and uh, uh, systemic racism, Um, looking at the lack of a willingness to protect women's right to choose. the mores and values kind of get thrown out the window when it's convenient for um, kind of the wealthiest among us, all that kind of stuff. So this has been a kind of a gradual and consistent erosion of these institutions for a long time. I mean, Chris Hayes wrote about this uh, a while, Twilight of the Elites, um, about exactly the undermining of American institutions 
um, that we would normally look to. We see this in the COVID, um, you know, pandemic when you're, you know, we don't trust science, right? Because of lack, you know, the undercutting of the, um, the authority of science or whatever it might be, you know, I mean, it's like, it's bad stuff. So anyways, um, Couple kind of quick things to mention. Then I want to just get, leave you with a little clip uh, clip that um, from Chris Hayes' show from last night. So um, we're going to be probably t- uh, hopefully we're going to talk more about this Georgia Resilience and Opportunity Fund, the Grow Fund, the uh, Guaranteed Income Fund. Um, again, it's going to be the largest um, uh, guaranteed income program um, that's going to be tried in the American South. It's going to be eight hundred fifty dollars per month for about by the time the program reaches its full thing, about uh, 650 women. Again, it's no questions asked. The idea is that you're you're seeing what the impact of this is going to be is yet another experiment. To see these things kind of building momentum across the country is really, really fascinating. Um, so hopefully we'll be able to get some folks from, um, from that program on the show at some point to talk about what they're doing with that. Um, it should be launching this week. There's a link in today's show notes uh, with more information. Um, before I get to Chris Hayes, uh, there's a link also in today's show notes to what's happening in Antarctica this week. We had temperatures of more than 70 degrees hotter than normal. Um, the range is actually between 50 degrees and 90 degrees um, um, hotter than normal. And uh, just I think it's worthwhile just seeing, I want to get the exact words. <laughs> so here's, uh, this is from uh, Brett Wilkins from the, uh, from Common Dreams writing about this. It says, so temperatures in parts of Antarctica were 50 to 90 degrees Fahrenheit above normal in recent days. Well, earlier, earlier this week, the mercury soared to over 50, uh, 50 degrees Fahrenheit higher than average, closer to the, close to the freezing mark in areas of the Arctic, right? Um, uh, Stefano Di Battista, an Antarctic climatologist, tweeted that such record-shattering heat near the South Pole was, quote, unthinkable and, quote, impossible. Antarctic climatology has been rewritten, quoted or, or tweeted uh, Di Battista. The joint French-Italian Concordia Research Station in eastern Antarctica recorded an all-time high of 10 degrees Fahrenheit on Friday. In contrast, high temperatures at the station in this time in March average below 50 degrees Fahrenheit. There you go. Another scientist uh, tweeted out, uh, tweeted out, I believe this is one of the scientists, says record heat in the Arctic is driving uh, an early melt season and crushing 2022 sea ice extent. Uh, current rank now number four, the Antarctic is even worse. With everything going on in the world right now, the dual polar climate disasters of 2022 should be the top story. Right, 100%. So i got a link to that story too uh, if you want to kind of uh, go down the doom hole with me uh, for that. Um but this is what's going on, right? I mean, this is what happens when we have, we should be focused on solving these problems, right? Um, and instead, we've got this situation. Uh, we've got the Russian invasion of Ukraine. We've got this kind of like like Republican nonsense that is happening all over the place and dark money flooding our local schools boards, which is keeping us all distracted from what we need to be doing right now. You know, and I gave a, um, I gave a talk this week in um, a colleague of mine's class. I go in there every, every year. Um, um, teach a class on kind of kind of geographies of globalization or it's called something like that. And I, I've been, you know, we've been doing this every every spring semester for a long time now. So um, one of the things that, you know, I won't take you through everything that I was saying there, but in the end I said, you know, we're, we're facing, we've got, we've got this problem, right? The, we've got three kind of major problems that are facing us right now, right? We've got number one, we've got the, plim- the, the climate change, right? 
You've got number two, you got the emergence of authoritarianism and um, and white supremacy, right? Those are the kind of the hand in hand one. And three, I'm going to forget the third one now. It was it was connected to that, but uh, I'll, I'll just I'll, I'll just I'll stop with that. Um, so th- we'll start with those. We'll leave with those two. And but the problem is that you've got these these problems that call out. There is no other way to attack to attack them um, it, uh, without working together globally. Yet we do not have a governance structure for that. Right. We have these treaties and we have these, you know, meetings where they pass resolutions, but there's no teeth to them. Right. I mean, this has been the ongoing process of globalization, right, that we're having increasing problems that are that are the capital. Right. You know, capitalists. Right. You know, they got the freedom this is the free market nonsense. They can move anywhere they want. Right. They've established their rules for business. But the rest of us are stuck in a 19th century context. <laughs> right. Where we're going through the pretense that that we're able to have some influence on these international, these global kind of, um, um, say, corporations that are writing these rules, right? Like the oil and gas industry, right? Yes, we can pass laws nationally to make sure that, you know, we do our best. But if just one country alone can't do this, we require a global governance structure that we do not have. And that's deeply problematic. And at the same time that's happening, there is a battle, an emergent one, between what form of governance is, governance is going to dominate. And we're seeing that work, out, work itself right out now in Ukraine. You've got, you know, a clear violation, right? Unprovoked violation by Russia, an invasion of Ukraine, slaughtering innocent people, destroying civilian targets creating war crime after war crime, day after day. What's the consequence? What do we do? And what's the structure in which we do it? And obviously, this is a serious problem because you're talking about an escalation of this conflict. Is It doesn't end well for any of us. Certainly not ending well for Ukrainians right now. But we don't have, we are not there yet in a governance structure at a global level to actually deal with this as the crime that it is, because we have no ability to have to force consequences without going to war that risks the planet. And that's where this might end. We don't know yet. So these are deep crises. And, you know, this is something that, you know, I've been tracking for years, my own research and that kind of stuff, watching these dynamics happen. And it's you've probably heard us say versions of this on the show before, but this is, you know, some of this, this, this kind of this conflict, you know, democracy is not looking great right now. And authoritarianism, and white supremacy is on the rise. Globally. And I don't think it is a and they have the character of, a, you know, that kind of ideological difference. Right. What is the best way to go forward? Is it an authoritarian regime like China? Or Russia? Is that where we're going to go? Because democracy is going backwards everywhere, including here. So without saying more than that, I just want to play you this little clip from uh, Chris Hayes' show last night. It's at the end of his uh, opening monologue segment. Um, I, I'd encourage you to go listen to the whole thing. There's a bunch of stuff in there. It gets, you know, whatever, we could talk about another time. But um, this is kind of how he concludes um, 
his monologue. The stakes are high and grave. Ukraine has been an independent country for nearly 30 years. It is a flawed but functioning democracy where the people choose their own leader. And they have an authoritarian neighbor who just cannot accept that, who seems willing to do whatever it takes to destroy it. I think after the pandemic, um, a lot of us thought about going back to normal, some turn around the bend where we get back to something. And I've come to see, both in the pandemic and in the global order, there is no going back to normal now. It's gone. The past is in the past. There is no restoring what was. As deeply imperfect and unequal as that order was, and it was in so many, many ways, I've really come to believe the elemental fight to preserve people's ability to govern themselves, to choose their own destinies, is the elemental fight in the era that we have now entered. There it is. Um, I couldn't agree with that more. Uh, there's some other things, like I said, I kind of uh, take some issues with how, how you kind of frame things and stuff, but whatever that's uh, like for, but that's, I really do think is important. And um, I don't know how we get our heads around that. There is no going back to normal anymore. And the, for, and the future is not clear. It's undecided. And we're going to have a part in making that one way or another. So anyways, we take a quick break, and when we come back, uh, we're going to talk a little bit about what's happening in Pennsylvania. Um, we'll kind of make it a kind of a little bit of a quick segment, um, see if you have any kind of issues that you want to bring up, and uh, we'll go from there. All right, this is Kevin Mahoney, editor and founder of Raging Chicken. You help support this show by heading on over to patreon.com slash rcpress. You become a patron for as little as five bucks a month. We'll be back right after this quick break. <laughs> I'm Rick Smith, and this is Labor History in Two. On this day in labor history, the year was 1911, marking one of the most tragic days in U.S. labor history. 146 women and girls died in the Triangle Shirtwaist Factory fire. The Triangle Factory was owned by Max Blanc and Isaac Harris. They ran the sweatshop on the 8th and 9th floor of a building in Manhattan. Most of their employees were young Italian and Jewish-European immigrant workers who did not speak English. The Triangle owners disregarded safety precautions and even went so far as to lock their employees in the building during the day. On that fateful Saturday, the workday was drawing to a close and the women were preparing to leave. A fire broke out in a rag bin and spread quickly. The women ran to the stairway, only to find the doors blocked and locked. Tragically, only one elevator was working. Firefighters arrived on the scene, but their ladders and hoses were too short to reach the women. One survivor, Celia Walker Friedman, recalled the horror of the fire. The door to the stairway was completely blocked by big crates of blouses and goods. She escaped by sliding down an elevator cable. Desperate women tried to jump down the elevator's shaft and out the windows. Horrified onlookers watched as these women fell to their deaths. In the aftermath of the fire, the International Lady Garment Workers Union organized an official day of mourning. A march to honor the dead and demand changes in the industry drew 80,000 to the streets of New York. The owners faced criminal charges, but were not convicted. They settled civil suits, paying only $75 for each woman who died. The fire became a rallying call for union organizing and workplace safety. Labor History in Two brought to you by the Illinois Labor History Society and The Rick Smith Show. For more information, go to laborhistoryin2.com 
Like us on Facebook and follow us on the Twitters at Labor History in Two. chicken uh we are here talking about what's happening right in our backyards and across the commonwealth in pennsylvania um but we'll start right here in bucks county with uh jim worthington of course uh he's become a a known person uh around these parts and really across the commonwealth he is the owner of the newtown athletic club in bucks county and he is at it once again i mean he's a, a prominent republican uh funder and um, I don't know if we call him an activist per se, but he's an inf- has a has some weight in the Republican Party in Buck County. All right, he is a uh, staunch supporter of Donald Trump, and he is one of uh, Representative Brian Fitzpatrick's um, uh, major financial backers. Um, we've heard about you know there being these instances where you know. Uh, whereas Fitzpatrick's constituents can't get in touch with him, right? He won't pick up the call, but um, he picks up the call for Worthington. Um, that's, you know, the kind of relationship they have. And Fitzpatrick is, uh, has been always very keen on maintaining that relationship in part because of the tens of thousands of dollars that he donates to um, Fitzpatrick's campaigns. So um, anyways, he's in the news again this week. Um, he got in a big kind of, I don't know, kerfuffle, if you will, with uh, – uh, a guy from Move On not too long ago because uh, the guy from Move On pointed out that, uh, you know, Worthington had funded a bunch of buses that went down to the Stop the Steal rally, and that's the rally that turned into the insurrection, or at least part of it did, right? Well, he got really pissed off about that, um, went and sued that guy, and that guy basically had to put up a GoFundMe site to try to raise legal costs to be able to defend himself against him. But you know how this stuff goes, right? Lawyers are expensive, so... I think that guy raised something like $4,800 or something by that. But, you know, Worthington, you know, he's got that in his back pocket practically. So anyways, he is now suing uh, Democratic congressional candidate Ashley Ahaz for $50,000, right? And why? Well, Ashley Ahaz ran an ad basically drawing attention to the fact that Worthington had been a supporter of and had funded the buses that went down to that Stop the Steal rally. Right. Um, And uh, Worthington basically is taking issue with the fact that she claims in an ad that she put out, I guess, that says, quote, uh, Worthington spent thousands of dollars to organize busloads of Trump supporters to attend the Stop the Steal rally that turned into a violent insurrection. Right. So that was the claim. Right. Um, That was in the political ad. Right. Um, Supposedly that is protected free speech. Right. Um, But I guess not. Um, The snowflakes came out pretty quickly on this one. Um, And so Worthington was really, really pissed off um, that this took place. He filed a civil suit on March 14th in a Bucks County court. And he alleges that he was defamed by Ashley Ahaz um, because she said those things. Right. So here's what uh, he claims. Uh, He says, let's see. He says, yes. So Worthington. uh, So in his lawsuit, Worthington is described as a, quote, highly regarded entrepreneur who enjoys a tremendous reputation locally, nationally and globally. Worthington served on the Presidential Council of Sports, Fitness, and Nutrition. He founded the People for Trump PA First Committee, and he was a voting delegate to the 2016 Republican National Convention, which, by the way, he funded his himself for that. 
He organized he did organize a group of 200 people to attend Trump's rally in Washington, D.C. on January 6. In a court documents, Worthington said that no one from his bus group took in any part in the insurrection. Quote, not one of them was near the Capitol entrance when the rioting took place, nor were most of them aware of any activities at the Capitol, the lawsuit states. Right. So this is the idea, right? Um, he wants to draw this nice, bright line between uh, going down to the Stop the Steal rally. Which again, let's remember the Stop the Steal rally was based upon fiction. It was a conspiracy theory. It was the big lie that helped foment and provide the justification for the insurrection. Right? So, yes, there were a whole lot of people that went to that Stop the Steal rally that did not go into the Capitol, right? I mean, just by the sheer numbers of people that were in attendance there, you can see that, right? However, there is a direct linkage between the conspiracy theory and the fraud being perpetrated in the American people, this kind of fraudulent claim that the election was stolen, right? That was the whole purpose of being there, right? Was to support the conspiracy theory. And if you think the election is being stolen and there's this big kind of like, you know, conspiracy theory against you, right? That is the kind of the predicate, the justification for the insurrection, right? So that's what these people are doing, right? So he got just as pissed off, as I mentioned earlier on, he got just as pissed off when um, a guy's name was Greg Bulla. Um, he, uh, it was four days after that attack, uh, he posted a petition on moveon.org calling um, on businesses to break ties with Worthington and the Newtown Athletic Center. And there were more than 7,300 uh, 7, signatures on that. And then, yep, he uh, got sued by Worthington once again, right, over a defamation lawsuit. And Bulla had to raise more than $4,800 from that campaign on a GoFundMe thing um, to defend him against Worthington, uh, Worthington's defamation suit. Right. So this is like the same kind of thing that Trump does. Right. Same kind of issue. Right. The way that you deal with it is that because you've got a lot of money, you just file these frivolous lawsuits. Right. Claim defamation because, you know, oh, my God, my personal, you know, my I got to clutch my pearls. Like I can't believe people are talking about me in these ways. Right. And then I, I'm just I'm, I'm being melted and my poor, poor reputation is being kind of like coming down here and I can't take it because I'm so fragile. Even though I own an athletic club and I'm all in my always with my cut off sleeve shirts and everything like this. That is just a bridge too far, so I'm going to sue them, right? So she's suing. He's suing um, uh, Ashley Ahaz um, for her claims that he funded the buses to go down there. So you got to love that. That is what is, we can expect. Lots of this kind of moving forward um, in Bucks County. And as I mentioned before, there's a great article by Marley Parrish in the Pennsylvania Capital Star. Um, it's uh, focuses on uh, Pennsylvania is facing a major teacher shortage. Um, there's been a pretty significant decline in the number of teachers, as I mentioned already, that are um, um, declining teachers that are coming out of school, right, that are getting their degrees in that and getting certified in um, in teaching. And you're having a record number of teachers who are leaving. Um, I, I want to say it was 50%. I think it might be a little bit under 50%, but we'll say 40 to be conservative. But the um, the NEA, the National Education Association, did a survey among its um, uh, its teachers not too long ago. Uh, I believe it was the beginning of February, um, which found that uh, 
Let's see. Let me see if I could bring up the. So here, oh, see, I was going to undercut it. So here's the the headline from that study that was conducted. So the National Education Association, the nature's, nation's largest union representative of nearly three million educators, unveiled its latest survey of members. This was um, February 1st. The latest survey of members' opinions on key issues facing public education during the pandemic. Conducted by GBAO Strategies, the survey shows the massive staff shortages in America's public schools are leaving educators increasingly burned out, with an alarming 55% of educators now indicating that they are ready to leave the profession they loved earlier than planned. Right? So in other words, you have... Over half of the teachers, this is nationwide survey, um, are looking at and really seriously considering leaving teaching, right? And part of that is, as they said, there's been a teacher shortage. Um, and part of that teacher shortage has been an ongoing attack on teachers, a defunding of public schools, um, the blaming of teachers um, for everything from, you know, having accessible books um, for students who may have, you know, parents who are gay, God forbid that. The kind of the vitriol that gets thrown at teachers um, and the explosive school board meetings, right? The uh, lack of resources and support, the lack of staffing, right? The increasing size of classes and insufficient resources, all that stuff is contributing to that. And now in the wake of what was just been going on in terms of uh, these school boards, it's only making the matters worse. It's only making the matters worse. Gotta love it. So, you know, um, you, you could say, you, you, you know, you can't blame people, right? Um, I want to give this out, the shout out, uh, Shanna Danielson. She's been on this show before. Um, she's run for office before, and she's featured in this article too as well. Um, and under the subheading in here, it said, we're being burned. I want to... Um, Read a little bit from that um, part. It says, ask Shanna Danielson, a 35-year-old middle school band director in Adams County, about teacher burnout, and she'll say, we're not burning out. We're being burned. Danielson, who is in her 10th year of teaching and her, and her first at a new school, said she has, quote, never had to endure a climate like this, unquote. She witnessed a group of rowdy parents shout at new teachers to take their masks off and booing them while they declined during a meet and greet with new staff members. Quote, you feel like every single thing you do is being watched, unquote, she said. Educators have faced criticism for enforcing COVID-19 health and safety guidelines. They've also been at the center of a culture war with false claims about the college concept critical race theory, all while just trying to do their jobs. Last fall, the Republican-controlled legislator passed a GOP-penned bill that would require Pennsylvania schools to make all instructional materials, techniques, and syllabi publicly available. Wolf vetoed the legislation, calling it, quote, a thinly availed attempt to restrict instruction, censor content, and reflecting various cultures, identities, and experiences, unquote. Right? Legislative Democrats argue that the bill would fuel debates over critical race theory, which is not taught in K-12 schools. And Williams described this... Uh, yeah, um, Legislation as a, quote, distraction from actually addressing the real issues that are happening in schools. Skipping down. Danielson admits that sometimes she wonders why she continues to go to work each day, but she has never questioned why she went into teaching, quote, because there is nothing like the moment when you help somebody figure something out that they couldn't do before and that they ha get that spark in their eyes, unquote. And she will never discourage someone interested in becoming a teacher. If she did, the current crisis would only get worse. Quote, 
I just want to get to a point where we don't have to keep trying to make it better, Danielson said. It's just better. Okay. There you go. It's a great piece. Interviews multiple teachers from across uh, the Commonwealth. I definitely give it a read. A uh, huge shout out to Marley Parrish for that piece. Um, and, uh, you know, again, this is coming down the pike. And don't you think for a second that Republican lawmakers in this in this in this Commonwealth don't have their eyes on that shortage as a justification for pushing further charterization, um, further cyber charter schools um, and the destruction of public education. So um, everything is pointed in the direction that when they see they have a crisis, they don't work to fix it. Right. Um, they work to destroy. So that's it. <clears throat> Anyways, uh, I could go on, but I'm not going to. I'm going to stop there for today. Um, definitely really wanted to highlight those two things. Um, and we're going to have a lot more hopefully coming next week. Just so as a, as a show note, <coughs> next week I may be trying to um, – I'm going to pilot it next week and see how this goes. Uh, maybe starting the show earlier than 11 o'clock. Um, when, when this show originally started on Fridays, we used to start to show uh, between 9.30 and quarter to 10. And that used to be when we started stuff. Um, but that started to change when, um, one, we just kind of let it slip for a little bit because we get a slow start or whatever. And, um, but then when Sean started having his, his morning meetings as part of his job, we had to push it back until later until that got done. Um, and so 11 o'clock became the default um, you know, not because it's something that we wanted, but not. So next week, I think I'm going to shoot for, um, a 10 o'clock start, um, to try to get a little bit back. And I'll tell you the, the only reason I'm, I'm suggesting doing this is because, um, the way my day generally would work out, like used to work out is that I would come in, do the show in the morning and be done by about noon in the afternoon. I'd have about three hours, um, to work, um, um, three hours, you know, to work on, you know, grading and all that other kind of stuff. Um, that's not possible now. By the time you get the editing done and everything, it's almost time for me to go get my kids. Um, so I ended up kind of you know, working late on Friday nights and all that other kind of stuff. So I'd rather have that time protected for my family and start the show a little bit earlier to see if we can get it working. So, um, so look out for that for next week. Um, also, we got a couple irons in the fire for uh, Monday night's Out the Coop live show. Um, I'll, I'll just, you know, look at our social media for it. Um, it's been one of these, you know, these past couple of weeks have been these these weird things where I've got been having these kind of back and forth with multiple people who I'm trying to get on the show. And uh, several folks are interested in coming on the show, but working out the schedule, the time is hasn't uh, we haven't been able to settle on it. So um, Monday is one of these days where it's uh, I thought I had somebody like last week for this week um, that turned out not to work out. So we're going to reschedule that one and hopefully we'll get somebody else on for um, for Monday. So so just keep keep I'll just keep you posted. Anyways, it's the end of this kind of really complicated, uh, frustrating. And I, for me, it's just been personally exhausting week. So <laughs> listen, I wish you all a super weekend. Uh, hopefully that the rain stays away for the weekend. It seems like it's still going to be a little bit of cool, but um, I'm looking forward to having a little kind of uh, time with uh, with my kids and uh, maybe go do a couple fun things. I don't know. We shall see. Um, but I hope that you are going to find all of your um, this weekend great. Hey, Emily, I missed you before. Sorry. It says, uh, Fitz, yes, Fitz. I, I should put this in. I missed uh, Emily's comment from before. So Fitzpatrick has been sounding warmongering by calling Zelensky's Ukraine Winston Churchill. Uh, Zelensky, Ukraine's Winston Churchill. Uh, yes, he has been in the kind of pro-war uh, camp, pro-escalation camp. 
um, was here, which is a really complicated. Uh, <laughs> he's got a really complicated history when it comes to Ukraine. Um, uh, Fitzpatrick, that is. Um, but anyways, um, listen, you know, I guess we'll keep our fingers crossed to see if things uh, pan out for the better in Ukraine. Uh, I, I really feel for those folks. Um, any way that you can think about supporting um say the refugees that are being forced out um, by supporting some great independent media in uh, Ukraine that need your support. Um, there's all sorts of relief agencies and so on. If you can help out, um, please do. Anyways, this is Kevin Mahoney, editor and founder of Raging Chicken. Um, look forward to um, next week. Hopefully I'll be a little bit more rested and a little bit more together and uh, we'll kind of uh, keep it rolling and look for that announcement about the uh, new fundraising campaign that we're going to be doing to help invest in uh, building progressive power right here in uh, Bucks County. So fingers crossed, everybody. All right, this is Kevin Mahoney, editor and founder of Raging Chicken. We're going to call it a weekend. Hopefully have a good one. I'm going to drink some more coffee, walk my dog, sit on a couch and stare at the wall. I don't know. <laughs> All right, everybody. Have a good weekend. Take care.